Well, one day when I was a, when I was a young teenager, uh, my uncle, my favorite uncle, if, I, if I'm allowed to say that, my favorite uncle, he sat me down and he wanted to share with me some words of wisdom that, that he felt it was time to pass on to me. Uh, he wanted to show me the grip for his vicious split finger fastball. That's what he wanted to teach me. And I was entranced. I was so excited that my uncle wanted to tell me this, partly because I grew up having my father, who was his older brother, always telling me stories about his little brother's athletic prowess. So I thought this guy was as professional of an athlete as it could get. And as an aspiring pitcher myself, I couldn't believe that I was getting to hear the secret of his wipeout pitch. But, but why did I care so much about what he was going to say? Well, two reasons. Uh, first, I admired him as an athlete. I admired him as a pitcher. Uh, like I said, his legend had been preached to me my whole life. But second, I wanted to pitch that way as well. I wanted to do well on the pitcher's mound. Now today, as we approach this passage, we have to remember where we are in the story. It's Christ's final week before he goes to the cross, suffers, dies, and eventually rises from the grave. And the religious leaders have tried to trap Jesus in his words. And during their conversation, Jesus declared the greatest commandment, to love God with everything that you are. And then Jesus, as we saw last week, asked them some questions before challenging them or rebuking them for their hypocrisy. But today, in this passage, Jesus is going to let his disciples in on a secret. There at the temple precincts, amid the noisy activity, the hustle and bustle of the day, Jesus discovered, unearthed, a true follower, a true lover of God, a widowed woman who lived in poverty. She gave everything she had to God in this story. And Jesus knew it. He saw it. And he rejoiced at what he found in her. So he pulled his disciples aside to tell them what he'd just witnessed. And why did they care? Why should we care about this story? Well, first, we admire Jesus as our Savior. We respect what he values and what he has to say. And second, we want to live well. We want to live as he pleases. And so if this woman pleased him, then we want to live like this woman lived her life. So let's read this story with this attitude in mind. It says in verse 41, and, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful little episode. I mean, don't you guys just love this little story. It's just moving. It's immediately convicting. 
because we see those phrases. She gave everything she had. She gave out of her poverty to God. Now this little episode, just to remind you, it occurred right around the corner from everything we've seen so far in Mark chapter 12. The debate with the religious leaders, all of that occurred on the Temple Mount in the temple precincts. But here they move a little bit closer to the actual temple itself into a place called the court of the Gentiles. Or excuse me, the court of the women. They'd come from the court of the Gentiles. And in this court, there was the treasury, the place where people could make their donations for the worship of God. And though the text doesn't say it, history tells us that there were 13 different chests that were set up that you could make your donation to. You know how sometimes in our era you make a, a donation to a church or to an organization or something and you go to the website and there's a little drop down menu where you can kind of select what ministry, where you want the money to go, general fund, a church plant, you know, things like that. Well, they kind of had that system set up with these 13 different boxes. Uh, some of them were, one was set up for new temple dues. So you were current with your temple tax and that's where you'd put your money. Some were for past temple dues. You had not paid for a while. You needed to make sure that you uh, got up to, to pay your bill. Bird offerings, wood offerings, spice offerings, gold offerings, and six boxes that were reserved for free will offerings. So these 13 boxes uh, were there. Jesus sat down in this place and he watched the people approaching these boxes and putting their money in the offering box. Some of your versions probably say that Jesus watched how they put money into the offering box. And there's probably that idea within this. Jesus isn't just seeing what they did, but how they did it. And he certainly saw how this woman had given her gift. And it says here in verse 41 that, that lots of rich people put in large sums of money. But this little poor widow, she comes and she puts in two copper coins. That's all. Uh, Mark says that it came to a penny. At least that's how it reads in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from. That doesn't mean our penny in uh, U.S. currency but the Roman reader's penny that Mark was originally writing his gospel for, which amounted to one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So I did a little homework to discover the California minimum wage, did a little bit of math to discover that this would come out to, in California's minimum wage, uh, according to California's minimum wage, $1.75. Okay, so she's put about $1.75 into the coffers, that day. Now, at this point, you might wonder how Jesus knew what they'd given. Some gave large sums. She gave two copper coins. How did Jesus know that? Now, I'm sure the wealthy people, when they showed up, they looked wealthy, and I'm sure this poor widow, you know, demonstrated or betrayed her poverty. You could probably tell that she was not a woman with means. But how did Jesus know precisely who put in the large sums and that she put in two copper coins? Now, for us, when we use money, it's usually a silent kind of thing, right? You know, you go to the ATM, you punch in the code. It's an electronic transaction. At the store, you use a credit card. You can't really hear anything. Even our paper bills are hard to hear. You know, how much is there? But for them, they used coinage. And the way that those temple boxes were set up, the treasury was set up, was like an upside-down trumpet. So You'd have this horned kind of shaped box, and at the very top, that's where you'd put in your money. You'd hear the clink, clink, clink of the money as it was dropped into the box. 
So the louder or longer the sound, the bigger the gift. It's also very possible that they announced the gifts, believe it or not, as they were being put into the boxes. We know that the donations that were given to the priests to help their welfare, to be able to keep on living their lives and doing what God had asked them to do, they'd come to the place where they'd actually announce how big those gifts were publicly. So maybe even the two small coins and the large gifts were announced publicly. But it's also likely that Jesus just had divine revelation. You know, he knew what was going on. He saw through everything else. Part of the reason I say that is because Jesus was able to declare to his disciples that she gave everything she had, all that she had to live on. How do you know that unless you're God who has seen into this woman's life? It says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, that the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing there that day. He was weighing the actions of those who were giving much and this woman who gave two copper coins. Now this woman, as we saw in the text, she captured Jesus's attention. He just loved her. He loved what he saw in her. I I just imagine Jesus in the temple just frustrated by everything that he saw there. Remember, it, it was only two days earlier that Jesus rode into the temple in Jerusalem, went straight for the temple mount, looked around at all things, left, came back the next day, and rebuked everything that he saw. He declared, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And so I imagine Jesus there in the temple mount just looking in that, to him, dry, spiritual wilderness for something, some sign of life. And there in this woman, Jesus found exactly what he was looking for, and he rejoiced. And really, this is not a surprise that this woman captured Jesus's attention, captured the attention of our Lord. She was poor, and she was a widow. And it's very clear in Scripture that God has a special place in his heart for people for whom life is hard. That's a steady theme of Scripture. Uh, Here's a psalm that sort of illustrates that concept. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners, people who are cast out from their homelands. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And you could find countless quotations like that from the pages of the Old Old Testament scriptures. God is concerned for the widow. He's concerned for the person for whom life is hard. And so when Jesus saw this poor widow at the Temple Mount, it's not a shock that he noticed her and started following her, observing her. So so he, he was bound to notice her. Now she probably hoped that nobody would notice her that day. You know, she's probably just wanting to anonymously get in and get out and do what she came to do. But Jesus saw her. But it was what the widow did that blessed Jesus so much that day. Not just that she was poor, not just that she was a widow, but what she did in her poverty. Jesus watched her drop in two little coins. Like I said, they're almost of no value at all. $1.75. No one there that day celebrated her gift. It's not like they stopped everything and said, whoa, we just had a huge contribution. No, she came in, she went out, nobody even noticed. Her gift was, in one sense, little more than an accounting error. But Jesus, he was floored by it. 
And he collects his disciples. He grabs them together, it says in verse 43. He's like, you guys need to see this. I I need to talk to you about this. I need to teach you about this. He used his strongest language. You know, whenever Jesus says, truly I say to you, it means big lesson stuff is about to happen. And he, he showed them this woman who was a model of devotion, an example of worship, and a true lover of God. Jesus' disciples, as we saw last week, they could not look at the scribes for an example of who to follow, but they could look at this woman. And the reason Jesus was so moved by her was she had put in, he said, in verse 43, more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. She put in more than anyone, Jesus said, more but how did she give more? There's a question. You know, this is amazing because everything in the passage portrays her as less. She's less than everybody. The rich came, but she was poor. They gave large sums. She gave two copper coins. She's a widow. She's even lost her husband. She's lost everything. But even though you can imagine the wealth of everyone else in the passage, this anonymous and forgotten woman to Jesus was the wealthy person, the the one that he valued and loved because she gave more than anyone else that day. Now clearly, if we're just doing the math, you know, we understand that the two copper coins, the buck 75, it was not more than uh, in proportion to what other people were giving. They're giving large sums of money. You know, if I was to walk up to you and say, hey, what would you rather have, the two copper coins or the thousands of dollars of gold that have also been deposited into the treasury that day? You know, in your brain, you'll go, well, I'll take what is more. But Jesus said that the two copper coins were actually more because they all contributed out of their abundance, verse 44, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, for the wealthy givers that day, there was no sacrifice. But this woman paid a price for her generosity. She'd given everything. And Jesus was more blessed by the proportion of her giving than the portion of their giving. And couldn't we say that her two copper coins did more for God's kingdom than all the other gifts that were given that day. You know, the disciples needed her selfless example. They, they needed to see what Jesus valued. They needed to see that there was no sacrifice that was too great for God. And they internalized this message, and fortunately, they began to live it out. And their gospel preaching shaped the world and has shaped our lives 2,000 years later. We are better because of the devotion that they embraced that Jesus taught them from this woman's life. But not only that, I would imagine that billions, if not trillions of dollars have been given to God's kingdom because of this woman's example. I'm sure so many people over the course of human history have read this woman's story and said to themselves, I gotta give. So those two little copper coins They got a huge return on their investment. Her little gift is still doing super abundant good. And Jesus just loved her devotion. He loves it when we lay down our money. He loves it when we lay down our time. Because it's a tangible way for us to show God our love from our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. 
And God loves our love. God loves our devotion. And sometimes we wonder if our sacrifice or our generosity makes a difference in God's sight. But you know, God sees. God knows. God loves it. There's nothing you can do for the Lord. There's nothing you can give to the Lord. No sacrifice you can lay down for the Lord that he does not see and love and appreciate. You know, today, Pastor Manny was praying for us in various ways, and as he was praying, I was just thinking about his life, knowing him and knowing so many things about him, and knowing that he's planted churches and pastored churches in various places throughout the United States, and knowing that God has seen every drop of sweat that he has poured for God's kingdom in all these various places. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord loves our sacrifice. Now, I recall a conversation I had not all that long ago with someone who is later on in life today, but was a, a integral part of this church family back in the 90s. Uh, during a time when the church was making really crucial decisions about what the future would look like. The church had been portable for 17 years, had been renting movie theaters, borrowing other church buildings, and had not had their own lo location to call their own from which they could gather and do ministry. And so around that time, the church made a big faith decision and bought a part of the land that we now own out here on Highway 68 near the airport. And they began to build, build our humble church sanctuary and church building and children's ministry classrooms. And I believe that the sacrifices that were made at that time will bring and are bringing a long-range impact in God's kingdom. You know, time will tell, and only God knows, but thousands of lives, I believe, have been impacted by the presence of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church inside the greater Monterey Peninsula area. And the person that I chatted with, what they were sharing with me, was just saying, you know, at the time, it felt like such a sacrifice. And what they were sharing with me was, but I'm so glad that we did it, because look at what God is doing today. You see, as we lay down our lives like this woman did, as we lay down our time and our treasure for the gospel, for the kingdom, he sees it, he loves it, and he uses it for his glory. But go back to this poor widow and I also want you to consider that her gift, it was exemplary of Christian maturity. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, one way to think about Christian maturity is, is that a mature Christian operates in faith and hope and love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, that we're to abide in these three things, faith and hope and love. And this lady operated in all three of those categories. First of all, she operated in faith. You know, she, she would not have given her gift if she had not seen the God who is invisible. But because she believed in God, she went to his temple and she laid down her life. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And this woman certainly lived by faith that day. If sight had gotten the best of her, you know she wouldn't have even given probably one of those copper coins but because she was seeing God, walking by faith, she laid down these two copper coins for him. Don't, don't you crave more of this in your life? Faith living. The kind of 
trust in God where you're able to make decisions that seem even risky unless God is in the equation. We're to trust the Lord, Proverbs says, with all our heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Okay, but this woman also lived by the biblical concept of hope. She had hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking. That's how we usually use the word hope. You know, I hope that he asks me out or something like that. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of future good that's coming from God. And in Christ, biblical hope turned into the confident expectation of future good that is coming in his kingdom. An expectation, a belief, a confidence. And that confidence helps us to live in light of the expectation that Jesus will one day be ruler over all. And that we'll one day be with him in his kingdom's glory. And this woman operated... With that hope, she was trusting God for her life. She felt that God could take care of her better than those two copper coins could take care of her, and she was surely right. Now, I think we crave a hope like this as well, total assurance that, that Christ's kingdom will come and the reckless abandon that is implied if we truly believe that his kingdom comes. But lastly, and probably most importantly, this woman also lived by love. Faith, hope, and love. She loved God. Remember what Jesus said to the scribe. He asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And clearly, the scribes were not doing that. That's the rebuke that we saw last week. This woman, she is. She's loving God with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. She's fulfilling the law. She's fulfilling the greatest commandment. And I love this. I love that as her little coins were clinking into the treasury that day, I just imagine her little heart just exploding with love for God. Like, I'm so glad I get to do this for God. I'm so glad I got something that I can give to him. It was a tangible way for her to live out what she felt inside for God. I think she felt, I've lost everything. I've got no husband. I've got no people, but I've got God. He's my husband. He's caring for me. He loves me. And she loved giving those coins to him. And I just love this so much because this story helps us see that, that everyone has a chance to love God like that. You know, she wasn't better because she was poor. And the rich that were there that day, they weren't better because they were wealthy. But her commendation from Jesus shows us how everyone has a chance to walk by faith and hope and love. Everyone can love God. I mean, just think about it like this. The New Testament wanted to give us this big, huge example of generosity. And it's not a wealthy benefactor. It's not someone who's been hyper-successful in the, in the eyes of the world. It's this person who has hardly anything. That means that any of us could love God like her. If it was somebody with billions of dollars making a billion dollar donation, we might be left saying, well, I could never do that. I'll never come across that kind of scratch. But this woman, she shows us all that all of us can love God. You see, real love, real generosity, it gives until it hurts. She had every right to withhold one of those coins 
But real love has an element of risk. It feels reckless sometimes. Which leads me to the last thing I want to point out to you today about this woman. She demonstrated Christ-likeness. Okay, Jesus, he, he loved her devotion. It was an act of maturity. But let's think about this last thing. She demonstrated Christ-likeness. You see, when, when Jesus came to us, what did he do? Well, well, first, unlike this woman, he stepped out of abundance and took on poverty. He became poor like this woman. Equal with the Father, Jesus chose the low position. He took on human flesh. He became one of us. He embraced poverty. Then, after embracing poverty, Jesus gave everything that he had. I think he liked this woman because he saw a little bit of himself, and he's the perfect man in this woman. She gave all. He gave all. He poured out his life in ministering to people in Galilee and Judea, and then he poured out his blood and breath when he died as a substitution for us, dying instead of us on the cross. And then after rising from the grave and ascending to the Father, what did Jesus continue to do from the right hand of the Father? He continued to give. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gave the gift of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He gave the gift of the daily grace that we need. And I don't know if you know this, but this is the Christian life. The Christian life is one of grace. The Christian life is one of experiencing and receiving the gift and the gifts of God. Really, it's what it means to be human. God made us. That's a gift. We exist. We didn't always exist, but we exist because God gave us life. He gave us creation. He gave men, women, and women, men. And even though the original man and woman decided they weren't satisfied with the gift that God gave, he kept on giving. He gave the promise that the Messiah would come. He gave the gift of Noah's ark. He gave the gift of promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He gave the gift of the Exodus. He gave the gift of the Ten Commandments and the law of God. He gave the gift of prophets and promises and declarations that the Messiah would come. He gave the gift of David and the gift of the son of David. And he continues to gift us as well today. And he gives gifts in general creation as well. He gives us the gift of taste, unless you've had COVID and you can't taste anymore. He's given you the gift of flavors and color and laughter and sex. God gave all of these things to his people and to this world. And then on top of all of it, God gave himself. So the Christian life is one of partaking of the gift, the gifts that God has given. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Everything we have is a gift. We're made rich in Christ Jesus. God's a giver. Christ is a giver. So, Jesus' spirit of generosity is something that God's children, we partake of, but hear me now, we are also called to engage in. And if I could say it like this, that's part of the gift too. You see, life comes alive when we give. 
Life comes alive when we sacrifice. Life comes alive when we lay down all or closer to all than before. Remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 20? He said, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, when we give, we find ourselves. We get out of the monotony of life. Everybody's trying to get, but as believers give, life comes. We find a tangible way to celebrate and love and adore God. In a sense, we're able to tell the God of heaven that we love him by giving him the stuff of earth. It's powerful. And like this woman, we have to give out of our poverty at times. Remember Jesus' words in verse 44. She, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had. Out of her poverty, the gift came. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of the disciple. We give out of our poverty. This usually feels like the, the worst thing to do. When impoverished, give. You know, when I'm down to my last minutes, give my time. When I'm down to my last dollars, give. Our reflex is to hold on and hold tight. But self-preservation, it breeds disastrous results and it doesn't work. But the disciple who grows into Christ's likeness develops a new reflex of generosity and believes that God will take care of the rest. And there's a story that I want to end with that illustrates this so well from the book of 1 Kings. Back in 1 Kings, God set aside a prophet named Elijah. He was kind of the, the first of the big prophets in that era. And God told Elijah to rebuke the people of Israel for their worship of a false god named Baal. Now, Baal was big time or known for bringing rain and thunderstorms, which led to crops that would grow. So people who wanted abundance in life, they would worship Baal. And so God told Elijah to tell Israel, hey, you're not going to have rain for years unless I say so. And so Elijah declared a drought, and sure enough, it didn't rain for years. And this, of course, led to a shortage of food in Israel. So God took Elijah, his little prophet, and brought him to a secret little brook where in secret, morning and evening, these ravens would come and bring Elijah food to eat. In the morning and in the evening, these birds would show up until one day the birds stopped coming. And with that, God told Elijah to go to a Gentile town outside of Israelite territory to a little town called Zarephath. They were also apparently affected by this drought. There, God said, I've commanded a widow to take care of you. A widow is going to feed you. So Elijah traveled over to Zarephath, and he got there. And on the outskirts of town, at the gate, there was this widow, this woman, alone, by herself, collecting sticks for firewood. Elijah approached her and asked her for some water. She brought him some water. And then when he's drinking the water, he says, hey, can you bring me some bread? Bring me some food to eat. And it was only then that this woman confessed to Elijah that she didn't have any bread to eat and that in fact she was collecting this last bundle of sticks so she could go home and build her last little fire so that she could cook her last portion of flour so that her and her son could eat a last meal together and then wait for death to come. It's a very sad story. But Elijah 
get this, he told her, don't worry about that. Go home, make me some bread, and give it to me first. After I eat, then you and your son can eat. It's a big request from someone who's about to die from poverty. And then this is what Elijah said. He said, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This woman would be miraculously provided for by the God of Israel. This Gentile woman was brought into the family of God. The sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, all in that story, brought into God's family because God could provide in ways that Baal could not, and those jars never empty. You see, the believer, what does the believer do? The believer, wait for it, believes. (laughs) The believer believes. We believe that God will take care of us. We believe the jar will not empty and that God will always be there to fill us up. So we give. In thousands of ways, we give.